are at work. And Lord, even more than that, help us to uh, to add our hands to your work, add our feet to your work, add our efforts and our time and our money to the work that you are doing, Lord. Help us to invest ourselves in you and your kingdom. Jesus, only Jesus. Good morning. Today I want to talk to you about the why questions. I think that probably every one of us at some times in our life ask God some why questions. We wonder why does God do things the way he does or why does he not do something? Uh, maybe uh, it's uh, at a time when uh, uh, Something has happened in our world. We had so many events lately of, of uh, terrorism acts. Again, this weekend, more of them following. And, and, and you wonder, why does that have to happen? With those kind of things, at least we have sort of somebody to blame it on. There's a terrorist or we blame it on the devil himself. There's some evil agent acting. But what about things that your insurance policy calls acts of God? Uh, who do we blame it on then? Why? Does some of those things happen when kids are, are killed in uh, storms? And, and you just wonder, why would that happen? Maybe it's something personal in your life. I had a Christian couple who said, uh, you know, we, we want to have children. We want to have children and raise them in a Christian home. And we're praying for that, but we're not able to conceive and have children. But we have a friend who's not married and who's on drugs and uh, who has aborted children and seems to just have one right after the other. Why is that? Why is that? Or maybe if you've never asked those why questions, you uh, hang around uh, the waiting room at St. Jude or Vanderbilt Children's Hospital for a while. And Why do little kids get, get cancer? Uh, why did some of those things happen? Maybe there's some things going on in your life right now that have sort of thrown you for a loop. And uh, you're asking God, why me? Why now? Why this? I think all of us deal with those questions at some time in life. Well, I don't have any easy answers to those questions today. In fact, I don't have any answers to the why questions at all. But I do have a place that we can turn to when we're asking those kind of questions. It's the Word of God because the Bible speaks to every situation in our lives and so today I want to point you to one of the Psalms, Psalm 74. I invite you to open your Bible there or follow with me on the screen. And we're going to go through Psalm 74 because here is a Psalm with which you may be able to identify if you're asking some why questions where God, uh, the psalmist says that very thing. We begin in Psalm 74, verse 1. Oh God, why? There's our why question right off the bat. The setting of this psalm is it was written sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. And the psalmist just can't hardly figure out why in the world God would destroy brutally the city that he had chosen to put his name, to build his temple, to put his glory there, the promised land to which he had brought the people, and then God just wipes it out. And he says, oh God, why? 
And the first thing that we want to see that you can learn if you're asking those kind of questions is that you can take those questions to God. This psalm is called a lament of the different types of psalms. By my count, there are 56 of the 150 psalms that are laments. Another word for a lament is complaint. The only type of psalm more frequently is psalms of praise. The second most common type of psalm, 56, over a third out of the 150, are this kind of psalm where the psalmist is pouring out questions to God, why are you doing this? And the Holy Spirit preserved these and put them in our Bible. And so what that tells me is God can handle your questions. You can take your questions to God. God, He wants you to bring your questions to Him. He wants you to talk to you, to Him, in whatever you're going through right now. He invites that. And He has made that invitation known by recording in Holy Scripture examples with which you can identify of those kind of burning questions in your life. Because that's the first thing we can say. You need to talk to God. You need to bring to God whatever's going on in your life. He's invited you to do that. Doesn't mean He's going to give you answers. Doesn't mean He's going to give you easy answers. But we're going to see some brutal honesty in this uh, psalm. You can, be, you can be honest with God. Now, can you ever go too far in what you say to God? Well, maybe. Because also in the wisdom literature, this section of the Old Testament, there's a book called Job, where Job asked the why questions. And Job apparently went a little too far because he had to repent at the end of the book. What Job went so far as to accuse God of wrongdoing and injustice. And so apparently Job went a little too far in his complaints and he had to repent at the end. But I'm saying to you, although there may be limits, God invites you to bring your complaints to him. So let's look at this complaint in Psalm 74. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? You ever feel abandoned by God? You'll feel like you're trying to serve him and he's sort of let you down, he's abandoned you? The psalmist does. Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? You say, you know, you, you're supposed to be our shepherd when the psalm says that you're our good shepherd and we're your sheep, and yet, why, you, you ever feel like God's angry with you? He does. And he says in verse 2, Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwell. God, you're the one who set this up on Jerusalem, and you've invested so much, you redeemed and liberated this people from Israel and brought them in, um, from Egypt and brought them into this land of Israel. Remember the nation you purchased long ago. And then in verse 3, he sort of invites God to go with him on a tour of the ruins of Jerusalem to see the destruction. He says, turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this desolation the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. The Babylonians had completely destroyed the beautiful temple that God had told them to make. He says in verse 4, your foes roared in the place where you met with us. That's a temple. They set up their standards as signs, idolatrous symbols there. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. The temple was a beautiful work of art in addition to a place of worship. Can you imagine how we would feel if people, if terrorists went through the Smithsonian and just destroyed it? And God had allowed something like that here. They burned your sanctuary, verse 7, to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we'll crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. 
Worse than that destruction, the psalmist doesn't hear anything from God. God seems silent. Verse 9, we are given no signs from God. No prophets are left and none of us knows how long this will be. He felt a silence of God. You ever felt the silence of God? There's just no word of explanation for me of knowing what's going on. And then in verse 10, psalmist asked a related question. If you ever ask the why questions, then you probably also ask the how long questions. And verse 10 says, how long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? How long is it going to be like this? When you're in the midst of something tough, it just seems like it's going to go on forever. I talk with people who are going through depression, and they say, how long is this going to go? You know, it feels like it's going on forever. And he asks those kind of how long questions, too. How long, God, before you'd answer prayers? How long before you do something? Maybe you're asking those same questions. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, verse 11, take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them? I would translate that verse or paraphrase that verse. God, get your hands out of your pockets. That's what he's saying. God, won't you do something? Why are you standing around with your hands in the folds of your garment? God, please do something. The inactivity of God in his world and his life has caused him to ask these why questions. In, in Verse 12, the psalm changes from questions to affirmations. Now, it doesn't give answers to the why questions. You won't find those here. But what it does do is call us, when you don't know why something has happened in your life, drop back to what you do know. You get it? When you don't know, when there are things in your life that you don't understand what's going on, why are you doing this, how long is this going to be, well, we don't have answers to that, So what you do, you drop back to some affirmations that you can affirm. What do you know? And that's what the psalmist does. Verse 12 is a turning point in this psalm. In fact, it's the hinge of the psalm, equal in number of verses before this verse and an equal number after. It's like this psalm is designed with this to be the hinge point, the center point, as he turns from questions to affirmations. And he says in verse 12, but... There needs to be that kind of thing in your life when you're asking questions. I don't know why, I don't know how long, but God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. And so he's going to make in these verses, verses 12 through 17, two things, affirmations, two things he does know. And you've got to ask yourself, do I know these things when I don't know the other things? And the first thing he says he knows is he knows God's salvation. He doesn't know why this is going on and why God's allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed and what's going on in his life. But he does know that God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. You see, that that he's got nailed down in his life. And so you've got to back up and say, do I have anything nailed down in my life? Is there anything I know for sure? Do you know that God's your savior and your king? Do you have that? So he goes back to the relationship, you see. He doesn't have all the answers, so he goes back to a relationship that he's established prior in his life that's going to get him through this time. Do you have a relationship with God in which you have come to serve him and he is your king? Then that will stand you well. And that's what he drops back to and says, but I know this. Let me show you a a corresponding thing that happened in the New Testament in John chapter 6, verse 66. 
in John 6 was after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and they had gotten uh, hyped up and thought that maybe Jesus was going to be their political Messiah, their king who was coming. And then he tells them, no, that's not going to be the way it's going to be. Yeah, I fed you all, but that does not mean I'm going to usher in a material kingdom. And so many of them got disappointed and left. Let me read to you Psalm chapter 6, I mean, uh, John now, chapter 6, beginning verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you, Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In some ways, that's not the best of compliments when somebody says to you, well, where else are we going to go, you know? But, but Peter is saying, I don't get what's going on here. I don't know why in the world you wouldn't accept them wanting to make you king. I thought this was the whole way we were headed. I don't understand what in the world you're doing, Jesus. This doesn't make sense to me, but where else am I going to go, Jesus? You've got the words of eternal life. Do you see how Peter drops back to what he does know? And that's enough? And he anchors himself there? And that comes to a point in your life when you're going to have to see if that's true in your life. Let's go back to Psalm 74 and continue to see how he drops back to, to knowing that God is his Savior. In verses 13 through 15, he talks about the exodus. That is, in the history of Israel, when they were slaves in Egypt, and God miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and they came out of Egypt, and Pharaoh's armies chased them, and they were hemmed in at the Red Sea, and they thought, what are they going to do? This is it. And God opened the Red Sea up in a miracle. They walked through on dry land, a miracle of deliverance. And then he closed the sea over the Egyptians so they, Israel wouldn't be looking over their shoulder all of their lives and destroyed their foes. And in one act, he gave them liberation. That was the foundational saving event of the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, like this in the Psalms, they continually refer back to that event so that's what he does here when he doesn't understand other things that are going on he goes back to that salvation event let me read you these verses there's some symbolic language in it it was you God God's my king from of old he brings salvation to the earth it was you who split open the sea by your power there's the dividing of the Red Sea you broke the heads of the monster in the waters that's a reference to to Egypt who was portrayed as a crocodile as a sea monster in the Nile and and so God broke the head of that sea monster. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert, the dead bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the, the shores. It was you who opened up springs and streams. So now he's continuing with references to the Exodus. They got to, to Horeb and there was, no, there was no water there. And God opened from a rock a stream. And then the latter part of it, and you dried up the ever-flowing rivers. They got to the Jordan River, and God dried it up so they could enter the promised land. You see what he's doing in these verses? He's going back to the foundational saving event. I don't know what's going on, but I know God is my Savior, my King, and he remembers and recalls the foundational saving event in the history of the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there is also a foundational saving event that the New Testament always looks back to. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Just like the Exodus is, and the parting of the Red Sea is the big miracle in the Old Testament that the Jews anchored themselves to when God wasn't doing miracles. So in the New Testament, if we're going to apply this, the death and resurrection is God's sign for us for all time of his power, of his control, of his defeat of Israel. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and God raised him from the dead to defeat the powers of darkness and of death. And that's what we go back to. So you see, when you don't understand what's going on, you say, can I affirm that God's my Savior? Do I believe that Jesus died and rose again? Because if you believe that, then you believe pretty much he can do anything, can he? You may not understand why he's not doing anything now, why he's not answering your prayers about cancer or your prayers about your kid or why you're going, you just lost your job at the, the time when you really needed it. But you, you, So you go back to that saving event and say, I don't know God, and I'm tempted to doubt you and abandon you, but God is my king, and I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead, and I anchor my life to that foundational saving event that I'm sure of, and if he can do that, he can do anything, and I'll trust him through the dark times. Now there's a second affirmation that he makes in these verses. And he also affirms, in verses 16 through 17, God's creation. He's seen the power of God in salvation and the order of God in creation. So let's look at those verses. Verse 16, the day is yours and also the night and you establish the sun and the moon. So he's going to creation and first of all, he says, the day is yours and also the night. And he knows that God has made day and night. And you know what? The sun always comes up the next morning, doesn't it? And the sun always goes down at night. Our earth is spinning on its axis a thousand miles an hour. No wonder some of you get car sick sometimes. It's just understandable, isn't it? A thousand miles an hour. And it completes that rotation at a thousand mile an hour speed once every 24 hours. And so when we're on the side of the earth that's facing the sun, it's daylight. And when we're on the side of the earth away from the sun, it's night. And that happens like clockwork. And God has established that day and the night. And the next part of the verse says, and you have established the sun and the moon. And so the moon, at the same time that we're spinning a thousand miles an hour, the moon is orbiting the earth and it completes that orbit every 27 days, 11 hours, 43 minutes, 11.6 seconds. And it does that like clockwork. And the, cycle, the phases of the moon are ordained and set. And the next verse he says, verse 17, It was you who set the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. And so he talks about the seasons are regular just like the daylight and the night. 
And so our earth, at the same time that we're spinning a thousand miles an hour, we're hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour. And at 67,000 miles an hour, we revolve around the sun, 584 million mile circuit. And it completes that 584 million mile circuit every 365.25 days. And that's why we add a day every four years and call it a leap day, a leap year. And it's so regular you could, you could set your clock by it. In fact, we do set our clocks by it, don't we? And so our earth is tilted on its axis 23.4 degrees. And as it hurtles around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour and we get to the point in the revolution where our northern hemisphere is tilted toward the sun, that's summer. And it happens every June or 21st or 22nd that we have that longest day of the year. And then as it continues that revolution and the tilt then is in the other direction so that the, our northern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun, we get winter. And it happens every winter solstice, December 21st, that it's the shortest day of the year. And then it comes back to where they're equal and it repeats that cycle. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with my why questions? Here's the deal. You hear what he says? In the, let me read 17 again. It was you who set the boundaries of the earth. Because you see, when you're asking the why questions, the problem is it seems so random. Why did these cells in my body go rogue all of a sudden and become cancer? Why? It seems so random. Why, if I, that light had been green, I wouldn't have gotten hit by that car and gone through these months of therapy, but I stopped at that red light as it was turning from yellow to red, and then I got hit, and it, it's unpredictable, it's random. The, my life is out of control, and the psalmist says, I don't understand why it seems to be out of control. But he drops back to that which shows the order and precision and control of our God. And he sees it in the sun and the moon, the day and the night, the summer and the winter. And there's a predictability there. And there's a sameness there. And he says, regardless of how wild and out of control this situation in my life seems... I know that God is creator and the God who can guide the planets and has set them with such precision that life is possible on our planet when apparently it's possible on none other of the gazillion other planets in the universe. There is a God who has precisely tuned this thing and set it exactly, and it's so predictable. The sun comes up, summer comes, and winter comes, and I will... I will believe that there's a God in control because I see evidence of that in creation. And you may think, well, that seems like a small answer, but when you're looking for that kind of order in a random events in your life, God has set in His Son coming up. Answer to your questions, I'm there. I'm in control. You're not going to understand all of this right now, but day will become night and summer will become winter because I 
am in control. So there's those two affirmations. They're not answers to why questions. But they're the rock-solid things that God, through his word, says you can anchor your life to, you can drop back to, to give you stability and peace and hope. I believe God's my Savior. I believe Jesus Christ died as the Son of God, rose again to defeat death. If he can do that, he can do anything. Life seems out of control, but there is a God who shows in his universe his precision, predictability, sameness, and control, and I can rest in that. Last part of the psalm is a prayer. Verses 18 through 23, he prays. Now, there's not a lot of difference between complaints at the first part and prayers at the end, but maybe the difference is this. Complaints tend to focus on the past. God, why did you do this? Look at these ruins. Look at the smash. And the prayer, if you'll notice, it still has an element of complaint, but it focuses on the future. It's calling on God to act. And now he's moving to say, God, would you, would you do something? Would you rescue? There's nothing wrong with you praying when you don't know why. God, do something! But it's a hopeful thing. And the other difference here in the last part of this psalm is is focus more on God's cause, God's name, and God's glory than on his own suffering. Let me read part of it to you. Verse 18. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. He's concerned about God's name. Verse 20. Have regard for your covenant. And then verse 22. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. I'm going to pray these verses. I'm going to pray verses 18 through 23. I'm going to invite you, if you're asking questions in your life, to pray them with me. You want to come and kneel here? We're going to have our public invitation right after this. You can come and pray and then just go back to your seat or just where you sit. If you want to do that, if you identify with any of those questions, if you're going through a tough time in your life, I'm going to invite you to make these affirmations and then I'm going to pray this prayer. So would you bow your heads with me? God, I don't know, but God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. You opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Don't forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Don't let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. Oh God, I pray for hurting people who may be asking why right now. I don't know their situations, but you know the depths of our hearts. And I pray, I pray that they'll talk to you, that like this psalmist, they'll, they'll turn to you, that you can handle any questions. I pray they'll come back to their lives to whatever is the bedrock, the foundation, that your Savior, that your Creator, and I pray that they'll pray for your cause 
and your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together with me at a song of invitation? Do you have an anchor for tough times? Can you affirm? God is my king. He's my savior. If not, you could anchor your life to Jesus right now. You could put your faith in him. If you'd say, I believe he died and rose again. I want him to be my king. I'll follow him. And he'll be that sure foundation for your life. If you'd like to do that, would you come and meet me here? If you want to join our church or make other decisions, we invite you to come as we sing. the power to raise the dead who can save us from our sin he is our hope our righteousness